Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. All right, all right, all right. Before we get started today, we just wanted to say welcome to the club. Footwork.club is now live, the official footwork website where you can find all the footwork content, including some new features. That's right. Along with our podcast and guests, you can find exclusive written articles, including blogs about our own stories, free products that can help with chasing the dream, as well as our first official merch. All that and more. So join the club. So today we welcome a very, very special guest. We have Jay Demerit joining the club today. Welcome to Footwork, Jay. <laughs> well, I never had great footwork in my life. So, uh, you know, it's nice to, <laughs> nice to at least have it on a podcast. <laughs> One day. Yeah, that makes two of us. Now, <laughs> I have to start off with your uh, incredible uh, documentary, Rise and Shine, which I, I watched about 10 years ago, which was part of the inspiration for me going on my own journey um, with football. But you started off the documentary with a quote, the poorest of all men is not one without a scent. It is one without a dream. What's the reason behind starting off your documentary with this? Well, it's, it starts with belief. Any, any, anybody that wants to go and achieve things that no one thinks they can, you know, that's, that starts with a belief system. And, 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 and that's what that means. And someone that can't dream that they can do it, they probably won't. And, and, and so that, that takes monetary value away because it, a belief and a, and, a, and a dream can start with just a thought. You don't need money. You just need a thought and a belief system that says you can. And, and it starts with that because that was really the epitome of, of the foundations of how Rise and Shine was built. You know, my story, you know, it started in the, in the cornfields in Green Bay, Wisconsin, not in the, in the terraces at Vicarage Road or, or, or in the Premier League playing in a World Cup in South Africa. That was, that was earned through many, many times of, of, of having people tell me I wasn't good enough and believing that I was. And, and, and sure enough, you know, you break through walls, you understand your purpose um, and you use it to the best of your abilities. And that, and that is really what Rise and Shine is. And it's just a vehicle. It's a story that, that, that was mine. And, and we use Rise and Shine now, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, but Rise and Shine is now a youth program, a charity. Uh, we're turning it into a digital, a digital learning platform for kids that can get to know themselves, get to be aware of themselves and, and really create their own belief systems. Because when you have that, then you can go and do what you want. You don't, you don't need other people to tell you that you're wrong or to tell you that you're, that you're not going to make it. Because if you know inside or, or if you have your own compass inside of yourself, you'll be fine. You know, you, whether you end up with a contract or not, you'll be fine if you learn how to control your life and be okay with it. And, and that for me is, is what the Rise and Shine story is all about. Mm, spot on. And we will get to the Rise and, Rise and Shine Foundation very soon. But we have a, uh, a motto here, really. Um, it's, it's been said before, but it's, it's very, it pertains to us very, very specifically is make your own path, you know, essentially meaning to follow your dreams and not necessarily be held to normal roots or the stigma of nine to fives if they do not fulfill you. Um, what does making your own path mean to you? Um, I mean, I think it's a lot of things. I think first is, is again, this it's about self-leadership and making sure that when you make your own path, it's uniquely yours. And, and I think we, we live in a world now where we're trying to either make somebody else's path, we're trying to take somebody else's path and make it ours, or we're looking at other examples of people that aren't us and saying we want to be like them or, or do their path. And, you know, I think when you, when you make your own path, you know, first you got to get to know yourself. And then that starts to create the confidence that you can go and do whatever, whatever it is that you want to do. 
And then within that creates the belief system to actually go and do it. And, and, and so the, for me, that, that for me is, is, is what that means. It's, it's, it's about getting to know yourself. It's about creating uh, a self-confidence through the things that you've actually done, parameters that will tell you that you're right. And then from there, it actually creates the confidence and belief to go and do that. And, and, and so I think for me, that's what comes to mind when it comes to about forging your own path. Were you always someone who was very sure in your abilities and, you know, having an innate confidence in who you were? Um, I think I, I'll put it this way. I think I always had support for me to either figure that out. You know what I mean? I, I was definitely never an overconfident person, but if I, if I've gone and done it or I've played against a player that's played in the MLS and I've played really well, and that person has complimented me after the game, whether I'm in the MLS or not, I'm still going to take confidence that I could be because I've just, I've just marked an MLS forward out of the game and he's just told me great job. And so I always looked at those parameters because we all have confidence issues as well, especially when we're standing in the back of a line, you know, and I stood in a lot of backs of lines, you know, in my life. And, and when I was 18, I moved out of my small town to go to the big city of Chicago and play against all these, you know, really touted and recruited and academy program kids in Chicago. You know, I, I came into Chicago big city, big soccer town and going, okay, now I got to wait in line and figure it out. And, and, and again, that takes a humility of thought, but it also takes a, a lack of confidence because I didn't know if I was good enough. I hadn't been in those situations enough. I hadn't played against really good players enough to know if I was one. I was just, you know, I got a, a small scholarship. Uh, somebody wanted to take a chance on me based on, again, a recommendation of my high school coach who said, this guy, take a chance on this kid. He, he's got something in him. I don't know what it is yet, but I see it. And, and, and sometimes coaches will just need that somebody that they trust and within their support system or their mentorship system and says, Hey, take a look at this kid. I, I, I trust, I trust that, that you trust me and, and, and do that. And, and, and so there are lots of moments where I had to stand in the back of that line and, you know, wait and, and be patient. But again, I always knew that I had things to do. And so sometimes when you're in the back of the line, that's a good time to work because when you get to that front and the lights are on, have you done enough? Are you ready for that moment? You know, and for me, I use those moments of, of, one, of, of uncertainty, both in myself, but the people that would pick me, you know, people that would, that would give me the scholarship or give me the contract, you know, you only get a couple chances to impress those people. And so I always use those times of standing in line as a, as a, as a time in the dark so I could work on my game. And, and, and I did a lot of that on my own. And again, that's mm -hmm. back to that self-leadership piece of I knew what I needed to do. I knew when my left foot passing out of the back wasn't good. I knew my right foot diagonal to my right winger on from the left center back position wasn't good enough. And I don't want to show that to the coach during the game. <laughs> you know, I want to do that. I want to do that with you on the training field after the, after the after training. So no one else sees that. And then in the game when the lights are on and the coach is wondering if he wants to pick me next week and I take a touch and I hit that diag because I've worked on it 70 times over the last two weeks and I hit it. I'm going to stay in the starting lineup, right? Yeah, 100%. So there are times in those, in those moments where you feel like you're in the back of the line, but I always use those times to make sure that when I got to the front of the line, I didn't, I didn't have the mistakes that put me in the back of the line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that, it's a, very important to have that kind of honest conversation with yourself of what you need, you know, what you need in your game, I guess, and what you need outside of, out of football. Are these some of the things that you kind of bring into the pillars that stand for, for the Rise and Shine Foundation? And can you touch on what that foundation means to you and then, you know, what it's doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Rise and Shine was built from a story that was a Kickstarter project in 2011, just after the World Cup. You know, people I didn't even know were donating $1,000 of their own money to make my story into a documentary film called Rise and Shine. $223,000 was, was raised because they had to buy all this FIFA footage and Premier League footage to tell yeah, the story okay. properly. 
And so to even to get to get it to a film, uh, my friend who ran a marketing company was like, we got to take this thing to, pick, to Kickstarter. My story was told in so many different ways in media throughout the World Cup, because again, how I got there was it was a really unique way. But, you know, when all of a sudden thousands of people I don't know that have seen the story, watched the story, appreciated the story, were donating their hard-earned money to tell it. And again, I don't make that money, but the story now gets to be told. And, and so when that happened and $223,000 was raised for the Rise and Shine story wow. from people I never met, you know, that was a big deal for me. And that, and that shifted my purpose to, as I came out of the game, to use my story as a vehicle, to use it as a story so people like you guys can listen to it and, and use it as if to, to, to apply to your life and, and maybe take the ideals or the pillars or whatever it is that, that can that can be inspirational for somebody else. And, and, and that's been the purpose, you know, and I use that. I shout it to the hills, to every high school talk I'm at, to every coaches conference I speak at, to every podcast I do with, with, with awesome guys just like you. It's, it's the idea of having this, you know, belief that you can go and do things that people believe that you can't and ultimately that you believe you can. And, and so what we try to do now with our programs is to teach young people that we, we work with teenagers, 12 plus, uh, the, the pillars themselves are what you touched on our belief, because if you don't believe it, don't do it. So it starts with that. You, you got to have that belief and how you find belief is, is to get to know yourself and to understand what you like and what you're, what you don't like, understand what you're good at, what you don't, what you're not good at, understand where you get support from, uh, you know, whether it's your parents, your friends, your coaches, uh, your, your, who, your girlfriend, again, you got to find support from somewhere. If it's not your parents and maybe it's somebody else or a big brother or a mentor, or whoever, it doesn't matter. But the idea is you got to find support from somewhere. Um, and then that leads to respect. So the second pillar is respect because respect is in, in the definition of where we, where we use it as the term is, 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 is three ways. One is you got to respect yourself. Again, that goes back to that awareness piece of really knowing what you're like. Did I play bad? Did, did, should I believe that coach? Is he right? You know, there's a humility built into that self-awareness piece and that's a relationship with you. So if you don't respect yourself, you won't listen. And so, but if you do, then you will, and you'll take that humble pie and you'll go out and train when no one else is around because you believed him and that there's a humility to that. And so that's the first line of respect is to respect yourself. And second is to respect that coach or that friend or the person that's trying to support you, your teammates. There's a respect in a two-way street. Uh, and then the last one is the, is the environment itself. And so, you know, when I moved to England, am I, am I going to lunch with the first team and like standing in line waiting? No, I'm waiting for everybody to, to go get lunch. And I'm sitting with the residency programs that are 15 because I'm, I'm 22, some American that shouldn't be there. I got to respect that environment. If I go in and start, you know, hopping in the, in the line, being this Larry American, yeah, I'm sure over here having a nice time. You know what I mean? I think things may have gone different because coaches are going to look at that and go, this dude doesn't respect the environment. He doesn't get it yeah. and shouldn't do that right now. And, and, and that goes for jobs. That goes for workplaces all across the board, not just soccer locker rooms. But um, I think the last thing that respect is, is the environment itself. Um, and then the third pillar for us is, is, is the work ethic. Work ethic is it's the ability to do it every day. The days you don't want to, when you look outside and you feel like you're unfit and it's raining and you don't want to go run, but you have to, if you want to get to that fitness level, where you're going to get picked. And so that's that work ethic piece is, is a hard one to teach because you got to kind of live that and know that that work is a transfer of what that next result will be. But until you work that hard and you get out of bed every day when you hate it, that result's not really going to come. And, and so until you get that result at the back end, you're never going to stand how important that was the work ethic piece in the front end. And so I think that that is a, a learned trait, uh, but work ethic is huge. And, and, th and that means working hard, is, we all work hard at time to time, but it, the working ethic ethically is when you do it when you don't want to. And so that's, uh, that, that's the third piece. 
and then the last thing is 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 uh, positivity because when you work really hard and you get out of your comfort zone and you do shit that you don't want to do, shit happens. <laughs> yeah. adversity, yeah. adversity happens, and it and it happens all over the place. You know, your your friend dies in a car accident, you break your hamstring, or you you tear your hamstring in half, and you're out for three months. You're you name it. Your girlfriend breaks up with you. You you miss a, a tackle and you give up a penalty and you got to sit back on the bench. It happens in all sorts of tiers of level of, of, of what happens in adversity, but positivity is what gets you through that and makes you understand to stand up to those environments and to say, Hey, this is part of life. This is, this is, this adversity is real and adversity is guaranteed. It's how you deal with it. Uh, and again, we've all read the quotes. It's how you deal with it to get through it is, is really what makes the person in the end. And that's where that positivity piece is because you can find a positive in anything you get cut from a team. I found positives all the time. You know, I, I remember, and I tell this story a lot when I, when I speak to people like you guys, where, you know, I had this big opportunity. I was in non-league banking 40 bucks for over a year, just waiting, waiting for that turn. And finally I get it. Third division Oxford calls up like, Hey, come for a tryout. We love what you're doing to this team, South hall. So I had like 30 bucks. I had spent it all on gas, borrowed my friend's car. We both go up there, get a tryout put on their awesome jerseys and thinking I'm a pro I go into there and and then literally in the 87th minute I got put on I maybe I don't even think I kicked the ball and that was it and all that time all that work all that thing and I'm like oh and then I'm talking to my mom she's like well Jay you tried probably you should probably come home now you know you may you almost did it you know what I mean but in the end I'm like no that's I gotta find a positive in this the positive is I just got a third division trial I don't need to look at the result of that. I need to look at the result of the nine divisions. I just hopped like mm. by, by staying and living in an attic for the last year. If I start looking at the, the, the failure on the day without looking at the parameters of why, then I'm going to give myself a service either. And so I'm looking at that going, how can I stay positive here? The positivity in that situation is, yeah, I didn't make the team. Yeah. I didn't even play, but the fact that I'm, I've hopped six divisions in a year, that's a good sign. That's positive. And so we always encourage our kids to look at every situation and figure out what's awesome about it or what, why you've grown or why it's, why it's better for you. Um, because it's, it's those moments of work that create the adversities and then it's the adversities that, that, that will cause the problems, but it's the positivity that will, that will actually get you through those problems. And so that's kind of the, the way we work from the pillar system. Um, and now it's not, how do you teach it? And so now we create practices all across the board about, you know, mentoring from support systems to practicing, you know, we bring up chefs and we, teach them how to cook or we, we, we bring up engineers and we do you know engineering lessons or we you know bring up an artist or a designer that works for the company they all know down here we do a design lesson oh well they're learning how to play football for me every day and so within that we create our youth programs in a very holistic way uh, and, and support our kids in a, in, a, in a lot of different ways amazing and and those pillars of your foundation that um you know is currently running there's a journey behind that and that's your journey that has created this um and I want to go back. You, you had a, a successful college career, but nothing came of in the MLS. And then um, with a friend of yours, you decided that you said, you know, let's go to Europe and uh, we can either try and make it here in the U.S. or make it in Europe. And you picked the, the European route, which um, I applaud because it's the same thing Dylan and I did, because it seems like it's the more difficult one, but the ceiling is significantly higher. And it's almost the excitement of the unknown. Um, and yeah, so, so walk us through that. What was the reason behind you making the jump to Europe? And uh, yeah, how'd that go? I mean, part of it was the opportunity. You know, we're only as good as the opportunities in front of us. And, and, and I had an opportunity to go live in England in an attic, but that was enough for me. You know, mm -hmm. I was, 
I just graduated from university. So I'd had, you know, 23 years of education that I kind of was like, yeah, I get to go do something else now. <laughs> I have this piece of paper that everyone thinks I have to have in my pocket now, thankfully. Uh -huh. And that took a lot of work and that it really helped with like my whole understanding of the creative world and, and the whole like design market and, and mindset that comes with it. But, and so I, I really, I looked to the design school days as some of the the best teachers and teachings I ever had about how to, about mindset, about the way I should look at problems or the way I should look at solutions. And, and, and so within that, it's, it, it was, it was one of those things that when I got this opportunity to go overseas, to your point, I looked at it. I looked at all the teams I had 96 professional teams in the size of Chicago, <laughs> you know, where I was, you know, I was in Chicago, Illinois is like, you know, I can get from top to bottom in about 10 hours. I can get to the top bottom of England in about five. And so I'm thinking to myself going, okay, to your point, there's a, there's a bigger, a lot more fish over there. It's a, it's a much more concentrated pond because I know the rest of the world is all trying to hop into that pond too. I get that. But I, again, I still was aware and I still saw my performances playing against college All-Americans that were playing in the MLS. I just know I didn't get drafted because I didn't, I didn't go to those schools. I wasn't part of the 48 that got picked that year. You know, this is in 2002. So it's not like it's, 2003. So it's very different to what it is now. I think back then I probably would have been given a different opportunity within the States side or North American side where I maybe would have ended up staying, but that's not, that really wasn't part of my story. And, and, and so for me, it was, it was about taking the most of these opportunities, uh, again, going to a light that was much brighter or a ceiling that was way higher and just, and then going in with an open mindset where I was like, what happens? I, I, I'm never going to know until I go and play and kick the dude that just got released from said club or the guy that was, you know, you're supposed to play for Manchester United and is now in the third division crushing it. You know what I mean? If I go crush that dude, what, what does that tell me? And so, again, I needed to put myself in those situations before I gave up on my dream. I really did. I needed to put myself in a place that I could shine if it mattered. I, I could get caught by a net because the net actually existed. And so for me, that was always it. And so, I, again, I still came in with a humble approach where I know I'm not going to go to Chelsea and, and make it right away. I'm going to play in the ninth division and 12th division. And then I'm going to go, OK, now I got a third division tryout. I'm doing things now in the right direction. And that's where patience, patience comes in, where it's like, now I'm doing it. Yeah, I didn't get the result I wanted in that next thing. But if you look at from three months ago to where I'm at now, it's a very different story. And so I just looked at that. I looked at the whole kind of dream big, think small mindset, where I know that that contract's over there. But I know to get to that contract, first, I got to make a team. Then I got to start for that team. Then I got to contribute for that team. Then I got to do it every week. Then I get to go to another division. And then I got to do it again. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then mm -hmm. I'll get that contract. And so I didn't think that like, oh, where's the contract? And I listened to my mom going, well, Jay, where's the contract? You know, I'm sure you guys are getting that too. Like there's pressure because everyone wants us to succeed and everyone, wants, but they just want us to do it, but they don't understand the process that it takes to actually get there. And, um, and the signs that you need to see in order to have the confidence to stay there. You, you know what I mean? And, and I'm sure you guys are going through the same thing. Like you get your first contract in Europe or you're playing for a team, you're like, okay, first step. Now what? You know what I mean? Like that's that's dream big thing. You just think small, and so I just tried to maintain focus on that kind of stuff in the in the in the gross spurts, the the, the uncomfortable stuff, the, the getting out of your comfort zone, and, and and going, what am I doing? But in a way, if you had your own ideals and your values of what you're trying to get out of the experience, your intentions, and and, and make sure that your intentions are real, go back to those. Are those still checking boxes? Are those still green check marks? For me, they were. And so I kept moving in the right direction. And it took me a year and a half to get there. But, you know, that's what it took. Yeah. To, to bring your point to uh, today's football, I think footballers nowadays are very focused on, 
I guess the idea of showcasing it to friends, to people on Instagram and stuff that I'm a professional footballer. And so it may be, they may be more inclined to give up a little easier if that's not coming right away. And so for you, you went out to England, but then came home for a little bit. You didn't have anything at the time. So during that time back at home, were there any thoughts of giving up? Because, you know, coming home and there may have been a creeping feeling of failure. There could be ego and pride, you know, with family and friends and things like this. But it seems like you still had this innate belief in yourself. Was it a tough time at home or did you feel like it was just a little time to get a break and then come back and reload? Uh, I mean, I would say I fluctuated. I was, it was a little bit of both at that period. You know, I, there was pressure on me. I had a design degree to get a job, you know, like, cause my mom's one of worrying about financial pressure. And like, I went to school for all this time and why don't you just go get a job? Cause I had job offers to be a designer. Cause I had just graduated college and, mm. and, and finished internships and having other jobs that were presenting other like monetary opportunities, you know, like, again, that's what our moms just want us to make our own money. So they don't, they don't have to support us as much. You know what I mean? That's what the mom, all moms want for us. They want us to be happy and they want us to support ourselves. <laughs> and exactly. so again, I was feeling that pressure, but then you come back to your point and I'm talking to my buddies who'd be like, hey, well, you European soccer player yet? And I'm like, nope, nope. I played in a couple games this year. Yeah. I've made, made no money, but I, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm doing, I'm looking at it in the right way. And I, I needed to go back there because at the end of that first season is when I started to get some of these trial games. So third division tryouts, um, two of them I had at another team called Shrewsbury Town, which is up near Manchester. Yeah. And they were looking at contract stuff, seeing if they could sign me and see if I could get a visa and all this stuff. So again, these were the signals I was looking at. It wasn't, I've made it. It was, there's whispers and there's things and there's progress. And so let's just worry about here. Let's not worry about my friend who never thought I was going to make it anyway. And now all of a sudden he's telling me, I'm like, I already know that. Like, I don't need that. And I just, you know, again, I don't, I didn't need, I didn't, I didn't need him to tell me that. I just, cause you know, again, I was just like, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. I am looking at this and with a, with a humble approach or a lens to go, no, 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 you should have seen this coach. Like he, he just finished coaching for the second division team called Oldham and he just taken over this other team and they're trying to sign me and again. You're not, your name's not on a paper yet. So no one cares. You know, no one cares. You only, only you should, you know, you know what I mean? And so that's kind of where I put a lot of my focus of, again, it wasn't to try to prove people wrong. It was just to prove that I was right. Cause I thought I, I could do it. And I really did. And I, and I was looking at the, parameters and I was looking at the coaches and getting feedback and playing against players that have literally three years later or earlier were playing in like the first division and for Wales and they're like of course they're like 38 at the time but at 34 they had had this great career and they're telling me just keep going like how the way you've progressed in this season is is it good like you just you know again you got to listen to those types of things too and for me I was just I was in that stage of my life I was trying to listen to it all and, and make the right decisions and again going back was the greatest decision I think I made. Yeah. And just the, the focus on the process and understanding that the rejections from clubs, this, the, they're not letting you into training or you get invited on a trial, you play three minutes in the end of the game. That's just part of the process. And the confirmation of you playing against top players and doing well just shows you that you, you could do it and you did do it. And then there was that friendly against Watford where things start to really uh, spiral into your direction. Tell us about that. When is that opportunity piece? You know, the, the, the shitty parts and the parts where no one's around, you know, those are the ones that no one really cares about. And, and, and you know, it's part of the process, but it's these opportunities that will, that will find themselves too, when you are doing the work, when you are putting yourself out there, when you are getting feedback and, and, and understanding that the next day is better and you are getting the third division trials now from the ninth division, those signs are just getting you ready for this one opportunity. And especially at the professional game, you guys understand this. There's not many opportunities out there. 
you know, think about the lines that you have to stand in of the world soccer in Germany and England. Think about all the kids and all the people all around the world that want to stand in that line and are standing in the line with you. You know, like if you do, if you look at those alone from a challenge perspective, it should put you in a pretty good place that I am in for this long haul challenge. But now how do you transfer it into something that actually turns into a piece of paper? And, you know, for me, it was it was that was the opportunity my, my my ninth division coach as you have it again there's always a part of the story where you're like yeah this seems like a part of this serendipitous journey but that coach was like hey we're playing against Watford in this preseason friendly I'm moving to a new team called Northwood you should come because I want you to play against Watford because I think you're good enough again to have him have the mindset to ask me he didn't have to do that but because of what I had shown him in the year and the work ethic that I showed him he's like come with me let's just play against that game. It'll give you another opportunity to be in the shop window. I have done enough work to know, to know what that's like. So I move and I come in fit. I'm ready. And again, as, as time and parameters say that Watford puts out their first team, thankfully, if I would have been playing against the reserves, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, but they put out their first team. I was playing against really good forwards, uh, an English international named Bruce Dyer and an, an, an Icelandic international named Heider Helgeson. And so there I am ninth division player, playing against these first division guys and the coach didn't have any money to buy any new players. They were looking for a younger center back because they had three old, older experienced center backs in front of me. And it was exactly what I needed. And that's where this time risk meets opportunity. Now you got a new pillar to stand on is real. It really, really is real. And all of those parameters had to be exactly at the right time for that opportunity to actually make the most of it. And, and, and I think that's what happened. And I think that uh, I was ready for it. I was fit. I was prepared. I just had two third division tryouts. So I knew what it was like to play against good players. And um, I was ready. I was ready for it. And I'd worked enough of my game to, to be ready for those moments. And sure enough, you get asked. And now you got to do the hard part. Now you got to go play at Watford training ground and impress them for real. And, uh, and so that took a whole nother mindset of that whole idea, like respecting the environment, respecting the coaches enough to go in going, hey, I got to be honest with you guys. Tell me what to do. I, I am someone that's willing and eager to work. You can see I'm a competitive guy, but you can also see I have a lot to learn. So I'm here. Please tell me how I can improve. Again, the coach is like, okay, yeah, 100%. We'll do that. And then they put me in the reserves for a week and a half. And I got to play two straight reserve games and show them what I had. And then that's where the whole kind of where Ray Lewington calls me in his office. And he says, let's get you on the first team and see what you can do. And so he brought me to the stadium against Real Zaragoza, a La Liga team. And they were coming for a preseason friendly and I walked in the locker room and he had me in the starting lineup with 10 guys I'd never even trained with, with the first team. And so we talk about these challenges and these opportunities, but you know, sometimes they freak the shit out of you too. And I'm like, Whoa, like really? And he didn't tell me. And I got these bits of anger and I had these bits of like, why didn't you tell me like blaming everyone else about how I was going to suck out there. And then I just had to, I had to write my ship and be like, mm. Whoa, this is exact, shut up. This is exactly what you have been waiting for. So stop being a wimp and get out there and, and do what you're here for. And that was a year and a half of work, a year and a half efforts for one moment, because I know if I go play well, I got a contract, but I know mm -hmm. if I play like shit, I got, I might have to start the road again and, and mm -hmm. figure it out. You, you know what I mean? And I didn't want to do that. And so I wasn't going to let my mental health take that away from me. I had to figure out where I was going to put my mindset. And that was this is the reason you don't want to eat beans on toast and sleep in an attic anymore. This is the reason <laughs> you've done it. This is the reason why you're in this locker room right now, because you deserve to be here. So get out there and do it. Mm. Like that's a, that, that's just a conversation, but with yourself, but it was the most important conversation I ever had with myself. Mm. 
because it, I did play well and, and I did change my mindset around and I went in with the energy of that. I'm, I'm here for a reason. This, this coach asked me and put me in the starting lineup for a reason because he sees something in me that he's testing and I need to go out there and test it and, and, and show him what I got. And, and, and so that was enough for me to get through that game. And that was enough for me to get the contract. Mm. Now, before we kind of head into um, that season, those, the first seasons with Watford, I have to ask, is beans and toast still a part of your diet any to any days or still makes well, that re- I added an egg and avocado and a bacon as my career went on and I could afford an avocado <laughs> okay, and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. Um, but I added, I added to that as my pre-match, but yeah, beans always provided me a, uh, uh, in, not too many though. Cause you know what happens then, but, uh, it was, uh, they're good energy source. They're cheap. Mm-hmm. Bread is cheap, mm-hmm. nice filling, but still kind of light. You know what I mean? Like, beans of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes pasta was always too heavy for me. So like beans on toast, like, a nice veggie and some other stuff was always my light, easy pregame meal. And I always never- love that. I always love that beans and toast anecdote. I thought that was the best. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy you can buy cans of beans in, in England for like twelve cents. Like wow. literally, I had, wow. I, had 20, I had twenty pounds in an envelope. I had, I, I got forty pounds in an envelope, two twenties after each game, and I'd spend twenty on Saturday night. <laughs> of course, <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then uh, and then I'd have twenty for food and and mm. and and like like a couple bucks for public transport, like trying to get out to training or meeting a couple bucks a day for that. Mm. Um, but that was it. But that's all I needed. It is all I needed. I didn't need to pay rent. Uh, you know what I mean? I was, I was so fortunate to be able to live with the roof over my head and try to figure it out. And, and so all those, all those things really helped me do that. Mm. Now heading into um, that transition into Watford, into the first team, um, a multiple, multiple facet question here, because I want to include the 2005, 2006 season as well. So if you can just speak on maybe some of the things that you were learning, some of the things that you learned that you had to improve on quickly as you just joined Watford and, you know, you're trying to get regular playing time. And then can you speak on that season, you know, where maybe the journalists had you guys written off as relegation fighters, but then ultimately something, something great happens. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, kind of what we talked about earlier, this whole process of, of understanding of where you're at and, 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 I knew coming in as a walk-on and I mean, I I got my first contract was one year, 25,000 pounds, you know, so I wasn't making any money yet, but I was making enough where I didn't have to eat beans on toast every meal again and spaghetti. But, you know, at the end of the day, I still knew I had a lot of work to do. So I came in with this, even if I don't play my first season, I don't care. I need to get another contract. So that was my first goal. It wasn't, I need to be a first team player. It was stay here for longer because a one-year contract is like a one-year trial. And I'm Mm -hmm. like that, that pressure is kind of annoying. I just, I want a little bit of more safety. So for me, it was like, I'm going to get myself another contract, what I need to do. And I know I'd get another contract if I became like a, a starter on the reserves and I would maybe feature. Sure enough, you know, again, I, I, I come in with the right attitude. I, hey coach, I know I got a lot to work on. What's the first three things I need to do to get in that starting lineup? Well, again, I'll, I can tell you my left foot passing out of the back needed to be better. My right foot diagonal. Again, I'm not going to hit it left-sided anyway, but my diagonal ball to the, to the winger in stride was, was number two. And the last thing was my communication uh, again. And I used to be like, well, I don't know what to say. Cause I didn't, I didn't re- I didn't, I didn't know how to read the game enough that I, I had a guy like Malky McKay, who is Scottish international right next to me reading the game. Cause he's been playing in the premier league and the championship for 15 years. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden I'm standing next to a guy like that. And he's going, Jay, talk, tell me what, you know, and I'm like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> but, cause I, cause I, didn't. I didn't know what to say. I was just like, I'm like, tell me what to do. 
And so that's what he did. And, and so he was an older center back. He lost his legs a little bit. And I was a fast guy that didn't really know what I was doing, but liked to be told what to do and coached and all the other things. And so that first season was really where I started to learn the position. And then the older guys in front of me kept getting injured. And I played 30 games my first year. And, and I, I kept, I did enough to stay on the, on the team sheet. And what that was, was that, and again, I'd ask the right questions. Like, what, what am I here for? Is it because of my competitive edge? Is it because I'm a good marking back? Is it because, you know, I can win balls in the air? Like, what is it? You know, and I was, you know, I had I check marks in a bunch of those directions. And then I'm thinking to myself going, well, if Sean Dyche comes back, am I going to get dropped? And what do I need to do so I don't get dropped? You, you know what I mean? And, and so that's asking questions to myself, but I'm also asking the same questions to coaches. And I'm not like always like in the coach's ear, like I'm not that guy either. You know what I mean? There's a time and a place for feedback. Um, but that was kind of what I was doing in that first year, trying to learn the game fast, not trying to make a lot of mistakes. You know, I always say like, when you get in those, in those situations, you know, trying to do too much is really bad. You know, I know, I know what I'm good at. I know I'm a competitor, win balls in the air, get the ball, give it to somebody that's better than the ball than me. That was my jam, right? As I got better on the ball, I'll get it, give it, give it, give it back to me. I'll give it back to my left back. Okay. I can keep the ball a little bit. That's year two, three, right? As I started to learn the position a lot more. And then the Premier League season actually helps you do that because they don't really put pressure on you from the front in the Premier League as much as they do in the championship. So I had had a season and two seasons in the championship with a lot of this pressure and ball pressure. Mm third season in the Premier League I was like whoa this is the easiest physical season I had but then in the box everything comes alive and I got to try to defend these world-class players that are bigger stronger and faster than me so now I got to actually read the game better and so by the time I got to year three that that really started to happen but it, you know it took this whole idea of like first I got to play kind of what I said earlier first I need to play how now how do I stay there and then how do I how do I actually become a leader on this team and so as we moved into the second season um A.D. Boothroyd, my manager, you asked kind of what was the main main factor there, and I think it was him. We hired a, a young, hungry, very, very positive and belief-centric manager named A.D. Boothroyd. He was the youngest manager in professional uh, soccer at the time, 34 years old. And we hired him as the youth director from Leeds. And, and so he had never even had any professional coaching experience. And he came in first locker room. We were tipped to be relegated to the third division in the championship, which is the second division. And he came in first day of training. Fire, coach just got fired after we lost our first four games he's like with what we have in this locker room automatic promotion i believe we can do it but playoffs minimum is what i require from this group i looked at him like he's crazy like like we just lost our first four games you've never even coached professionally before like what are you talking about and sure enough like he just kept us believing in it but he did this really interesting man management system where every day he would talk to each of us in his in our own way and then on the Sundays, we would come in and, and he would have a big, big circle full of chairs. And we'd all sit in the middle and, and have and stare at each other. And he, we'd talk about easy, hard shit. We'd do, we'd do, you know, communication exercises. We would, we would have our names on papers all around the walls. And, and people would have to write what we did and what, well and what we did not well. And like it started this whole circle of communication. And, and it built this whole team mentality throughout that season. And by the time we got to Christmas, we actually believed him. And by the time we got to the end of the season, we were third. We just, we just almost missed out on automatic, went into the playoffs knowing we were still the underdogs in our minds. And, but we were such a well-drilled machine at that point. And our circles had become so strong and, and so, um, so powerful and, and, and confidence building for us that we, I mean, we, we drew against, uh, Crystal Palace in our first round and, and 
we beat them 3-0 at home and, and nil or 3-0 at their place and nil-nil at our place and, and walked into the playoffs with a lot of confidence and Leeds was supposed to wipe the floor of us. They had all the big names, all the big money, and and, and we beat them 3-0 in the final. And, and, you know, sure enough, I'm on the field with the man of the match ball going, well, I don't know how this happened, but here I am, and this is amazing. And, and so that was kind of this whole idea of me now knowing and building more confidence in myself that I do belong there. I am sitting there holding that ball. And, and, and so gain confidence in that, and that moved into our premiership season. Amazing. And then you make, I mean, here you are, you, you were in the ninth division going on trials and now here you are stepping into the prem. I mean, what was that like? What is your head at at that time uh, going from beans and toast and now you're playing against the likes of Ronaldo's, the gigs, Drogba, Lampard. I mean, the best players in the world at the time. It's a little bit scary. You know, it's, it's a little bit daunting to know. And the hardest part, um, and it's funny, I, I do this podcast with Watford now and, and I had Tim Howard on this week and we talk a lot about like when Americans had to transition to the Premier League and he was like, he's like, when I was playing for New Jersey Metro Stars, you know, yeah, we'd play against, you know, internationals in the MLS, but it was like one time and then two weeks later, another one would come. But in the Premier League, it's every week It's like the best of the best is playing up front. They're either because they're the like, whatever they are, Finnish internationals, uh, you know, uh, Ivory Coast internationals, you know, you name it, they're all there. And so you don't actually get to take a day off. Like you don't get to be like, oh, we, this is a gimme or this is a way we can kind of come in. Like in the Premier League, everybody is as good as the next person. And, and these guys are incredibly good players. And so for me, it, it was it, that Premier League season was just a learning experience, understanding, you know, from, for, for me as, a, um, as someone I knew I had a lot of work to do. It was uh, a season that was actually my best season. I, I was, I was runner up player of the year that year uh, to Ben Foster, who still plays in the league right now um, as a goalkeeper. He was on loan for Manchester United. And uh, so again, all these little confidence boosters for me where I was like, okay. And that gave me the confidence that I could play internationally. And so I, you know, I got my first cap that year. It gave me the confidence to walk into Bob Bradley's team after not even being in one camp until I was 27 years old. And I walked in and I was playing next to the guys I play with every week, Tim Howard, Carlos Bocanegra, Stu Holden. These are guys that I had watched on TV for years. And I always thought I could play with them, but you know, I had to show them that I could. And then I walked into the US locker room and, and, and did the same thing as I did when I walked into Watford's. I sat there, I waited on the bench until my opportunity came, um, which came at the end of the Gold Cup in my second season um with the with the u.s national team i got to carlos got injured in the gold cup final i finished that game we won the gold cup got got a trophy and then uh and then went to south africa and and uh and, and in 2009 got to got to play against uh the confederations cup opponents which were my first real starts for the national team were brazil italy and egypt mm -hmm. so i had three really good opponents to show bob bradley that i deserved to be there but again, I had to wait. I had to wait for almost two years for that opportunity. And again, I, I always thought it was such a privilege for me to be able to travel around the world with my country and with my flag on my sleeve. And, and I was like, this is, I'll do this forever, even if I never play. Like, this is the ultimate goal. So that was never a thing that was daunting for me. It was never something I found annoying. I actually found a privilege in that. Like, no matter what, I called up as one of 28, 25, 23 guys, depending on what camp it was. But like, the fact that you're even chosen is enough for me. But then I'm like, I still want to get out there. I'm still waiting. I'm still on my opportunity. You don't wait. You don't wish for your, you know, your, your, your teammates to get injured, but you definitely wish for your opportunity to come. For sure. And so that's where really in those moments, whether it was Watford or, or, or the national team, 
that's what kept my confidence going and, and then playing well for Watford in between and, and, and being a captain of that team and earning a leadership role at that organization for me was also going on at the same time. And so that I, I gained confidence in that when I could come in from a national team and know I was a leader in my team in the UK, that, that bred a lot of confidence for me to go and say, like, I, I belong here too, from the national team program. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you've always, I mean, from the steps that you've taken from, from the ninth, 10th tier, um, it's just, it's been necessary to have that confidence and to think of what is possible. But did you even, you know, in taking steps into Watford, um, did you think that the U.S. men's national team was on the radar at all? Or when it came, you know, or when you were in the Premier League, did you feel like it was on the radar at all? Or when it came, was it all just one big, you know, kind of excitement? Um, the Premier League season is when I started to get the whispers. And again, Bob Bradley was in Chicago when I was there. So he had heard of my name way back then in 2002 because he was a coach of the Chicago Fire but they had a really good team and they didn't really need walk-ons like me and so they didn't draft me they didn't take me and, and I understand that but but again thankfully Bob had kind of known my name a little bit and so it wasn't a total mystery as to what my story was um, but it wasn't until I started to really play in the Premier League and play okay and play well where I could come off the field and be like okay I just played against this Welsh international all day and I did okay I think maybe I could be an international now, but it wasn't until I got into those moments that I really believed it. And I probably shouldn't have been able to believe it. And that's what I always say, like, don't believe it until you should, <laughs> you, yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Sometimes mm -hmm. I think we believe the hype too early. And I think um, that's, there was an example for me and until I got it playing against the Van Persies and the Drogba's and the Ronaldo's and came off of those fields going, I think I did a pretty good account of myself there. Then I started going, okay, well, maybe they'll call. And, and then again, when I do get called, I got to come in with a whole new mindset of like, okay, respect the room, understand that, you know, you might, you know, a guy from the MLS that's a rookie in the MLS because he's known in the program might start over me, even though I'm a captain of Watford. Mm -hmm. I understand that because that's, that's the pecking order we, we are in, 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 in team sports and, and, and also knowing our stories. And, and I think I was, that was one thing I never lost was just knowing my story and knowing where I'm, mm -hmm came from the path that I had that was uniquely mine. And so if I wasn't starting right away, even though I am the captain of the Premier League team, I could come in with an ego and go, what? This guy's going to start in front of me? You know what I mean? Like, do you not see that I'm a captain of the water? You know, I'm like, no, nah. like, I'm, that's a whole other story. I'm going to come in because I'm happy to be here. And I'm, that guy is the starter. I'm going to be a fan of his until he's not. Yeah, 100%. I mean, just to even, I want to speak just a little bit more on this 2010 World Cup. Um, First off, I'll paint a little scenario for you. Um, Tim Howard catches the cross. It's a quick, quick outlet to Josie. Ball in the box. Little deflection. Landon slams the home the rebound. Where's Jay Demerit during this play? And what was that celebration like? What was that feeling like? And that encapsulation of, you know, small town in Green Bay climbing the water, the, the ladder to, you know, walk off with a huge win and a knockout game in a World Cup for your country. Well, and again, I, I, it's funny. I saw that video today. Somebody posted it in the stands. <laughs> yeah, my buddy Stan's army. He's, he's the social media guy. He posted this remember when like kind of idea. And, and I, I see, I watched it and I'm like, I'm in the box. Again, like I have a half a tongue at the time. I don't know if you guys know that story, but I had like cut my tongue perpendicularly down my in the third minute from an elbow. So I'm like spitting blood for nine against Algeria, nine. right? Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. I, like, mm -hmm. feel like I got blood all over my lips. Like you look at any pictures. So I've been doing that for like 80, 87 minutes. And so mm -hmm. I just, I'm just trying to get through it. When the ball comes in the box, like I'm just trying to do my job. I'm not trying to like get down the field or do anything extra. Right. I'm just doing, I'm just doing my lane right here. And uh, I remember it's in the box, but cross whipping in, I kind of grab the guy just Tim comes into Tim's hands 
And then I see Landon, I, again, I just see him toss it like far. And, and I'm like, oh, geez, Landon's in. Like he's on, on his own right here. And so that kind of starts it. And we, as we push up the defense, it's just like one of those oh, 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 kind of ideas. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it goes in. And then I come sprinting down, do a, a barrel roll over the big pile. And then I got to run back there and, and, and wait for the final whistle. But, you know, that was just a culmination again of, of a bunch of guys that really believed in the cause of why we were there. That's why we, that group really got a lot of, a lot of really great wins over 2009, 2010. I think we were a group that just really believed in each other, really liked playing and with each other. Um, you know, we had a competitive edge to us. We had a bunch of characters, you know, we had the Dempsey's the, you know, the Altidores, the Howard's, the Bocanegra's, the Charendolo's, the Holden's like, these are guys that all have such abundant characters and what we've all brought to a different, different group. And, and I think Bob would love that about us. I think that's what made it fun for him too. He's, he didn't always understand our characters, but I think he just, he knew that we loved playing with each other. And that, that says a lot. And, and so Bob put always put good groups out there to allow us to have those big victories that we did. And I think, um, you know, in the end, that was the, that was the key. Yeah. Now, how is that with the national team? Because you spend so much time with your with Watford at the time and not so much with the national team. But when you come together, you have to perform immediately. You have a week or two together and then you have to perform in these big games. What are some things that you did or you experienced in this camp that uh, really made the group uh, tighten it? Um, well, we had fun together. You know what I mean? We, we were a social bunch. Like we'd, we'd get in, we'd go straight to the restaurant and the bar the first night. And again, we're not like out till 9am and like being dirt jerks. So we can't train the next day, but like, we really liked hanging out with each other too. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see this with the new group. Like they like being with each other. They, they laugh mm -hmm. and they play jokes on each other and they have fun. And that was always a good foundation of that, of that team for sure. Um, again, we had enough leaders in our, in our group that were all leaders as individuals that really, when we came together with that amalgamation of who we were, it hit, we really hit the ground running. You know, Tim was captain of Everton. Carlos was captaining Fulham. I was captaining, you know, um, uh, Watford. Stu would actually won the armband for a couple of times now at, at Bolton. And Steve was the captain at Hanover. And, you know, you look at these leaders that were all coming in from these clubs and then we're all like, yo, you're like me though. I'm American too. And so in a way it's like this awesome like kind of crescendo of like we all deserve to be there and now we get to enjoy playing with each other because it is like there is something bigger when you play for your country it's bigger it's bigger than what you do for your club and, and you can feel that when you play and you put on those stars and stripes and you understand that you're representing something that's much bigger than you and so it, in a way it kind of adds to the purpose of why we're all there and I think we we all understood that because we had led in our own ways and, and, and know what it's like to lead clubs from our, an individual standpoint. But when we put it all together, we went and fight, we'll go and fight for that flag. That, that's a whole nother, whole nother mindset. But I think we all understood that. Mm. And now, I mean, after that experience, we all know uh, uh, football is a game of opinions. I think, you know, you'd probably know that the, of the best of us. And so it's evident you have a very strong world cup, you know, you're doing well with Watford, but a new coach comes in, Jurgen Klinsmann, and you don't get the return to the national team. So was it hard to come with this, to come to terms with this, especially as you were performing at such a high level now? I think you were with Vancouver at the time. And yeah, I guess there's not just one moment where you're told you won't ever be back. So it's a little bit of a waiting game. So what was this experience like? Yeah, no, it was frustrating for me. You know, it was at the end of Bob's era. He didn't call me in the Gold Cup. I had a I had a couple groin injuries my first season. I started playing on turf, and I and I I, I turned mm -hmm. my I turned tear my groin three times in a season, Jesus. and really really had a, a tough time adjusting to turf. And as we got to that off season for the summer, Bob was just like, I don't know if you're ready. I don't know, and it, it got kind of started it. And so I didn't. I took that Gold Cup off, 
we lost to Mexico and, 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 um, not to say I would have had something to do with it, but our team started to break up after that. And, and again, I was, I, I understand, you know, what, what fitness is and, and, and you got to come in if you're not starting and playing well for your, your, your club, it's really hard to come in and do the same thing for your national team. Like, and, and so I was injured a lot and I wasn't coming in at great form, but I thought I fought if I could have game came into those camps, I would have gained form, you know, by, mm -hmm. by getting, getting more, more regular football playing on grass every day. And so that was the first initial disappointment, but I understood why Bob didn't pull me in. And then Bob, after that, after he lost to Mexico, got fired. And so my connection to, to the manager was gone. And, and I know me and Bob had a really unique connection. He saw me as a player much deeper than your Klinsman, whatever would, um, Cause you got to get to know my character to really understand what I bring to a team. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a guy that's a little bit brash. I'm a little bit like adventurous in, in, in what I do and who I am and what I'm into interested in. And again, because of my story, it's just what I'm into and who I am. And so Bob saw that cause he knew my story a little bit better. And when Jurgen came in, you know, I was a risk. I'm a risk to a lot of coaches, you know what I mean? Because of who I am and in my personality and, 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 I don't think I fit into Jurgen's system. He never called me to tell me that, but from what I understood and, mm. and from why he broke who the other players he brought in that weren't like me, they were more technical out of the back. You know, the John Brooks of the world, he was just starting to come through as a young, like good on the ball, you know, very German centric mechanical player. And, and he wasn't a dogged defender that didn't really like to play with the ball that much and, 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 and lead by competitive edge. And, and, and Bob liked that about me, you know, I've listened to interviews and I've talked to Bob about it. And, you know, he, he said, there's a reason why PK and Puyo play next to each other. And, 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 and so that's kind of what he, his formula was. He had, he had guys like Gucher, Carlos that were better on the ball. And then I was this, you know, renegade that was sitting next to him, willing to do anything for his team. I mean, that was his jam. And then, and, and when Jurgen came in, he was much more, you know, honesty German than that. He wanted us to be mechanical. He wanted us to be playing out of the back and 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 being and being a lot more kind of playing, you know, in those types of styles. And I didn't fit into that style. I still don't. <laughs> and, and that's why I was okay with it. You know, I didn't make a stink. I never made any immediate stuff about why and how or say about why isn't this guy picking I'm like, I'm not into that, you know, and I'm not like that. And so I just appreciated my time and understood mm -hmm. that. Um, and from what I know is that I don't think I would have got along with Jurgen very well anyway, from the guys that were there and didn't get along with him yeah. and, and kind of left the, left the program too. As you saw, like he kind of kept waving into the older guard that was with us in the 2009, 2010. They all one by one went away mm -hmm. and a lot of a lot of coaches do that a lot of coaches need to change their internal leadership group um because it helps them lead and if you got a bunch of leaders that don't agree with the way you lead then a lot of times that can be pretty sticky and i can see that starting to happen and again i was probably the first one to go um but again we had a lot of strong personalities and leaders in that locker room and slowly those went away when when he took over the system but that's normal you know we as professionals know that and 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 so i never took it personally um, I just, uh, you know, you always want your time, but I had it. I had, I had, I had my time. I got a full run. We got to win a lot of games, win our groups. You know, I just, I'm just thankful. Yeah. Now, um, so you, after this World Cup, your contract wasn't renewed with Watford, um, and you you transitioned into signing with Vancouver in the MLS. Now, was there sort of a redemption factor in the fact that you you had to leave the country for an opportunity, and then now here you are? Um, seven, eight years later, coming back to the league that once didn't even give you a sniff? Um, I never blame the league. I blame the system. 
you know, like I, no one found me because I wasn't, no one was looking for me. You know, the system didn't create the net for me to be found. And so again, I never took, I never took that personally, but I definitely didn't want to be the old dude that came back just to get money in the MLS. Like I, I didn't want to do, I want so when I finished my Watford contract, I was a free agent going into the world cup in 2010. You know, I was, I was 31, 30 years old. I was in the prime of my career and I, and I wanted to come back and play. I, I wanted, you know, I'm a guy that comes from a, a great family and support and all of these places and things that I never really got to enjoy with. You know, my parents would come twice a year to the UK. My brother would come once. My friends would come every now and then. But over there for eight and a half years, I was basically a solo. I was over by myself. And, and for someone that's fairly family oriented and, and appreciates the journey of to enjoy with other people, and it's one thing to do it yourself, but you still want your parents to be there with you. You still want your friends in the stands getting free tickets because it's cool because they know the captain. Like, that's cool. Like, I've always liked that. I've always yeah. wanted to be that. And, um, you know, to come home was an opportunity. I, I wanted to come back to the MLS. I didn't necessarily want to exactly then, but that was the best opportunity I had found through the transfer window. The the transfer window, some of the teams I was going to go to and some of the offers that were on the table, they just didn't work out for lots of different reasons. Uh, players had to move that were already in the teams that they needed to get rid of so they could bring me in after we had negotiated contracts and everything. So there's a lot of this kind of roller coaster of excitement. But in the end, you know, Whitecaps were coming into the league. I thought it was a really unique opportunity to be the first signing and captain of a, of a, fran of a expansion franchise. Like I was just mm -hmm. like, wow, from a leadership perspective, that for me was the be was the biggest opportunity. But you know, I had, for instance, I had a, I had a contract at Stoke. They're like, yeah, you can come up. You can right now. You'd be our third center back. And so I'm coming, I'm coming off captaincies and playing every week, being a leader on my team to now saying, oh, you gotta go sit on the bench because you can make a couple couple bucks more and live in a place like Stoke that I didn't want to live and all the other things that made me me like none of those were fitting it was just like Premier League tags and money and I was like well purpose leadership abilities experience like none of these things are actually being called on for me and so are those should those be my driver but then it's like I go to Vancouver and it's like leadership opportunity first signing of a franchise number two captains to be a, a part of something of growth of North American soccer, which I was a big part of and am a big part of. And so I can use my story to help grow the game here where it actually matters so much to me. And, and then, and then the other side was Vancouver is the most beautiful place on earth. Like, why wouldn't I come here? Soccer started here in 1979 in North America, the oldest town in North America that started, you know, the NASL and, and, and won soccer bowls. And so there was a history of the game here. So people here weren't just, you know, North American soccer fans that didn't really know anything. Mm -hmm. So all of those opportunities pushed me here. And I, I flew here, met the team, met, met with the, the personnel, saw the place, saw the stadium we'd be playing in the year two. And I was like, this fits. You know, it's not about the money for me. I was never supposed to be there in the first place. That, that's all bonus money yeah. for me. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I, I wanted money. I just go get a job in my degree. But if I, if I want this, I, I do this because of experience, in all honesty, that the core of why I, I, did, I, do, I do everything is, is, is that. And all those pieces fitting into Vancouver were the right move. You know, the other moves were just about money and ego. Mm. And that's not what I like to drive from. So I think it was just, it was just a, the right fit for me. And, and it still continues to be, I still live here. I'm, I'm 11 years in and I still looking at the mountains every day, being a part of the, the, the soccer world here, not with the white caps, but again, that's allowed me to, to be here and use my experience to build my own programs, which I've done over the last seven years. Was it tough to uh, see the game the you know last night Canada USA? You're living in Canada. You're a USA man. A little bit of a you know a little bit of a, a tug and pull there. How was that? Well, again, like you have to remember, uh, Sam Adekubi and uh, who scored the last goal and Alfonso Davies. I spent years mm -hmm. mentoring those guys. 
Amazing at, yeah. at the White Caps, right. and so I have affinities to those guys. Russell Tiber, who's still the only White Cap left, that I, you know, I came in as someone that watched those guys grow, and 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 to see where Sam Adekubi is now, ten years, that's what it's all about. Watching mm-hmm. his growth, why you know, seeing for a young White Cap that thinks he can go and do the things he did last night, it took him ten years. Yeah, but he but he's done it now, and he's just what he's doing. That's a confident, well versed, very good player that has been developed over the last years by putting it into his own story and going to Norway, leaving the Whitecaps, and and doing this kind of stuff, having confidence to come back into the national team and be a good player and play against a team like America. And that's down to John Herdman. That's his. I've done some stuff with John Herdman over the years too, and the dude oozes positivity, belief enthusiasm empowerment he's all those things and i watched him with the women uh do that um win the bronze medal and turn this country around as far as the way they looked at soccer um and again i'm 11 years in now so i I have a i'm a part owner in a a professional team here i do lots of different things in the game and and create a lot of my stories so i've developed a lot of these canadians and so i cheer for them too you know what i mean i was cheering for the u.s don't get me wrong i (laughs) i still wanted to see the the stars and stripes win but you got to appreciate growth and you have to appreciate people that um you know put themselves in the line for years and years and years to get to those moments and then they get them and they he wins and he gets to have that moment in his son like and hopefully those guys, which I, I believe they will go and qualify for a World Cup, the second World Cup they've ever qualified for, you know, you got to be happy for, for those for those kinds of stories. For yeah. sure. I mean, especially ones that you're so associated with. Um, before we get into our final fast feet round, I just I watched your TED talk actually recently, and I love this point about risk and preparing for the, be- the best versus preparing for the worst. A lot of us have a plan if we got fired, I think you said, but what would be your plan if um, you got a promotion or say for soccer terms, if you got an offer from a team to two divisions higher, can you just talk about that relationship between success and best worst preparation? Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of times it's just, it's where do you put your focus? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have, we only have so much time and energy and space and people that are around us. And, and I think, um, you know, when I, started to figure out like when you start doing these TED talks and people really help dissect your stories and like there's panels that work for TED that absorb everyone's stories and they're like this one this is what's so interesting about you and what they said to me was throughout a a 10-year career for 12 if you count the last two years at the Whitecaps you know there's five moments that were either going to put me into the next stratosphere or keep me down on the ladder and basically each time I got to one of those pivotal moments of if you win or you score or you play well, you get a contract. If you win, you play well, or you score, you make the Premier League. If you win, you play well, you get to make the national team. If you win and you stay healthy, you get to beat Spain. If you win and you sprout and you stay healthy and you do this, then you get to play in a world cup. Like, again, there's like five or six now that I can, I can look at in my life. And I was, I was able to be five for five. And, and, and why though? And that's when we started to get into it of like, we just, they felt that when I got to those moments, I was prepared. I was ready. I had, I had gone through all of the things that could have gone wrong. But when I walked out of that tunnel, I believed I could have scored that goal. I believe I can be man of the match in this game. I do. Cause I did. And, and that was, an, that was, and that was a confidence of many years, many training sessions, many ways that I was validating that confidence. It wasn't overconfidence. It was validated by the things that I've done to show myself that I could do it. And in those moments is when you do it. That's when things go right. And if I'm going in there going, oh, well, look at Ronaldo. He's going to crush me today. What do you think is probably going to happen? He's probably going to crush 
Yeah. If I go in, go into Man U, and I'm going, oh, well, we're in Old Trafford today. Oh, I know this is a tough place to win. You know, think I think we're going to win much? Probably not. And so part of it is the attitude you walk out of the tunnel with. Part of it is the skill set you create to actually walk out of that tunnel and be confident. And then the third part is actually creeping a mindset at a, at a level space where you can actually perform. You know, a lot of times we, we psych ourselves out before this performance even starts, or we think about all this stuff. So by the time we get into the game, I'm super drained because I've been yeah. thinking about all these yeah. players getting all worried about something else. When all of that stuff goes away, when, when you can have the right mindset and you, and, and you prepare right and you, you're ready for that opportunity because you've thought about it. You know how many times I sat and, and waited for that set piece to come on off the back of my head? You know, yeah, we work on it in training, but you know how many times you sit there and go, okay, well, if he does this, I'm going to do this. Or if Rob Hall's, you think, and this is what happened and they go, like, I, I'm inching to the front post because he would have done his research and known that that was my run. Nine times out of time, I'm hitting that near post run, but I see him cheating because I know that he's doing that. So if I have enough confidence in myself to go, I'm going to go around the back this time because I can see him cheating. That ball comes in right at the back. I wasn't supposed to be there, but I was, and that's where the ball went. And there, no, then you got this moment. And so if I'm not confident enough to be like, I'm going to change my game here. This dude's trying to beat me, but I'm smarter than him because I can see him cheating. I'm going to go around the back. This is when moments like this happen. It's when you can think on the fly, when you have confidence to do so in your own abilities and you're ready for them because you've thought about it. You, you know what it's like to, to go out there. You, you've been in these situations before, whether it's in your mind or on the field. Again, both are relevant, but now it's just about, you know, going out and actually performing and having the mental capacity to do it when there's 75,000 people there. You know, if you do that, you go in blind, it's probably not going to go very well for you. But, you know, I, I tried never to go in blind. I tried to go with my with my eyes wide open ready for anything but knowing what could happen if it goes right and going in with that mindset focus on those things don't focus on the dude running at you and thinking that he just won Premier League player of the year last year because he did and he probably will come at you if you're not coming in going he's going to come at me I'm ready for when he does let's go let's go let's go and that's the way I looked at it I was like I'm I did I deserve to be here I'm ready to be here let's go this is a challenge of a lifetime but man let's go test that reputation let's not be scared of it don't let that dude beat you before we even kick the ball let's let's go kick him and see how he how he how he handles it and let's go kick him and test his reputation to see how he handles it and that was me all day long I just come in with open eyes but also like ready to work ready to get everything I could to make sure that my performances were were, were making the most of the opportunity that was in front of me yeah I mean it just sounds like you were a sponge for your entire time in England just soaking up everything that you could to be the best version of yourself so now we're going to get into our, our last bit. It's our fast feet round. You can spend as much time as you want on any answer, but we're going to start with favorite moment of your career. National Anthem, USA, England, 2010 World Cup. Standing Ooh. there, my support system is there to support yeah. me. Hand on my heart here in USA, playing against England, the team that gave me my life, basically gave me my career you know, so much, so much respect for that country and the way that it taught me about the game and the culture within it. You know, I owed so much to that country. And I knew on that day, I had a bunch of Watford fans that wanted to see me play well, but lose, you know, so I'm standing there in that halfway line here in my stars and stripes, again, feeling that purpose, feeling the reason that like much bigger than us. We're here to represent our country in the biggest sporting event in the world. You know, that moment, I just remember having these chills come through me, like I'm doing this right now. And like, yeah, this man. is crazy, <laughs> yeah. but it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. And I just want to be here and I can't wait to go kick Wayne Rooney. That's basically what's probably <laughs> what I'm thinking. But uh, yeah, that was it. Brilliant. Most difficult moment? Uh, getting my captaincy taken away from me. My second, my last season at, uh, uh, my sorry, 
my my I just got in the captaincy. We've got the Premier League season. We went down. Uh, they gave me the captaincy to stay. So I was a championship captain. And then we made it to the playoffs, but limped in. Like by then I wasn't playing well. I was carrying everyone's problems. I was trying to overdo it all because I thought I had to be this overpowering like captain that was doing too much. And I was doing too much and I wasn't playing very well. And right as we got into the playoffs, A.D. Boothroyd calls me into his office. And he's like, Jay, I'm taking it away from you. I think it's too heavy for you right now. Because I'm not going to not start you. You're still going to play. But I'm going to give the captaincy to this person. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I'd never thought that, that would actually happen. And when it did, it was a big adversity for me. It had to, you know, like when you, bright lights, and there's a lot of pressure on you to do things. And then all of a sudden, this whole identity that you thought you've created for yourself gets taken away. Because the captain isn't just the dude that wears the armband. You're in the, you're in the media, you're in the, you're in the community, you're doing all these different things. And, and, and I love that so much. And then to have that taken away was a big ego hit for me because I thought I had made it. I thought I was doing a good job, but when he put a microscope on it, I wasn't, I wasn't doing as well. And, and, and in a way it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because the next season I came back with a different attitude of, of owning my lane and making sure I'm not doing too much outside of my own performances. That makes it easy to lead when you do you well, but I got that order mixed up when I got the armband and taking that away from me was my greatest adversity. Um, uh, because this whole identity shift and this ego shift had to happen for me to understand that he was right. And, mm-hmm. and um, but that was hard. That was hard for me to take and not walk the team out in the playoffs when I had kind of taken the captaincy to get him there again. And I did. And then all of a sudden it got taken away from me. It was a big, big ego hit. And we lost that game. And, and again, I didn't, I didn't play that well and, and neither did anybody else, but that was, that was a, that was a moment for sure. Mm. Now, as a, as a man with a lot of family, actually, from Wisconsin, um, I would regret if I didn't ask you, because um, I think you're a Packer fan, so hopefully, but do you think Aaron Rodgers is done in, in Green Bay? <laughs> it's funny. I was just talking about this yesterday. Uh, I have a lot of opinions on this. Uh, I've watched more Packers games than probably most people that aren't in Green Bay every week. Um, I'm a diehard Packer fan. I have a good relationship with the club over many, many, many moons of uh, heading back to that stadium. And I, I still go to Lambeau Field once or twice a year um, outside of COVID, of course. But uh, I think that he will have internal conversations with Devontae Adams because if Devontae Adams signs another contract, he will too. Yeah, I that's, agree. My, that's my jam because that's all they need. They need him and they need Devontae. The rest That's are parts that can play around them mm-hmm. um, and, and, and do a good job. So again, they've had, they got a decent O-line. Bakhtiari needs to come back and actually be there. But because you got to protect him, you can't throw if you can't protect. And that's what happened in the in the uh, the first playoff game a couple of weeks ago. He was just pressured the whole time. He couldn't make any throws. And so, but I think Devontae and him are the offense. And so I think if, if they both are in agreement to stay, they'll stay. But mm-hmm. if one, if Devontae is like, I got 40 mil a year being the highest paid, you exactly. know, yeah. And he can in the league. Like, why would you, you know, yeah. why would, why wouldn't you go? And then if that he goes, Aaron will go in my opinion. Very glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you weren't a footballer, what would you be? I would have stayed in the creative world. I would have mm-hmm. uh, been a designer, been a kind of creative director type of role where I just get to use crazy ideas and, and, and a design mind thinking that's where I think where I would have lived. If I would have stayed in sports, I think I probably would have went into maybe physio or, or some kind of uh, 
massage therapist type of thing for athletes and things. Cause I was, that was kind of my barbershop. I really had a lot of good relationships with my physios and the massage therapists that traveled with us. Uh, we just had a lot of really interesting and more probably cerebral conversations than your traditional athlete conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always enjoyed those. I always, always kind of kept me going and, and it kept me interested in things. And so if, otherwise I probably would have gone into that if I would have stayed in the game. Yeah. Just learning again. So best mm-hmm. advice you ever received. Good question. Um, I mean, probably my mom just always telling me whenever I get in a situation, just make sure you're respectful and make sure you're nice. Like mm-hmm. make sure you're, you're a good guy. You know what I mean? And that, that was the biggest thing my parents ever taught me was just be supportive, be nice, be, be, uh, be who you are. And, and, uh, and I think my parents always just drum that into me in the best way and, and, and really let me be me while still supporting me from behind. And, and I think that, was always something that gave me the confidence to take big risks because mm-hmm. I knew that if I didn't make it, if I didn't get the contract or if I didn't get the job, my mom would still, oh, that's cool. You can come and live with us if you want. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's all I needed. But, but in a way, that kind of that soft support always allowed me to be crazy. Yeah. Best player you ever played against. There's quite a list uh, for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that you can put that in categories, but I would say overall, <laughs> number nines that actually had to play up against me. A lot of tens didn't play up against you. They drift. Like right, they right. drift. So I get to see him for 20 minutes of the game. I don't get to see him for 90. So like the big nines were always my toughest. Uh, JDA Drogba being number one. Um, couldn't find a way to beat him. Uh, and he was one of those guys. He scored two goals against us, one goal against us. Many times we played Chelsea, he crushed us. And he was one of the guys where I couldn't find an answer. I couldn't disrupt his rhythms. I couldn't close him down. I couldn't beat him to a ball. I couldn't beat him in the air. Um, and normally I'd do that against the Roonies or people that were kind of less physical than me. But uh, I would say him and probably... I mean, you can see the genius of Messi. I wouldn't say Messi just because you can just see it. Again, I didn't play up to him too much, but I could see the way that he can control games and yeah. I can see his, his level. Mm-hmm. I would say him and Steven Gerrard are the two guys that I've seen really just control the whole game all by themselves. Yeah. And Steve did that uh, in my first couple of seasons. We, we played Liverpool in my, in my uh, first season. I got to play at Anfield and... I watched him take a ball from his left back and take a touch and rope it 50 yards right into Luis Garcia's step. Like this ball came two feet away from my nose and just stayed there for 50 yards. And I'd never seen anyone kick a ball like that. Anybody. <laughs> I'd never seen it. I'd never seen that in my own eyes. It's like, what people can do this. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was my whole idea of like the difference of being a professional player and being world-class. And then mm. and those guys showed me what world-class is. Always levels to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So best player you ever played with? Watford, Ben Foster, or Ashley Young. Cycling uh, GK and uh, do you right. watch that? Do you watch the cycling GK at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. Nicest man in football. He is the nicest guy in football. He sounds like it really. He sounds him. like it. I've known Ben for 15 years now and he's, he's as good as he, he seems. He, he's, he's Amazing. a great man. Um, and I would say for the national team, Steve Shrundalo probably and then tim howard a close second but okay. but steve, wow like and i was kind of like a high energy person so steve always calmed me down he's mm. always just like so chill i don't know if you remember steve but he never lost the ball yeah. always played nine out of ten yeah. always kept the ball for us never made the all great one be one defender 
really kept a calm line back there yeah. with me. And, and so he just really helped me in those big moments um, to settle and, and, to, and, to, uh, and to play into the game and, and, and to do my job. And I think Steve just always added that little bit of calmness that I needed. Mm. So I always liked it when he was, when he was by my side. <laughs> yeah, no, super stable guy. It's, I like that you gave that answer though, because he didn't really always get the headlines. So it's kind of nice well, to see how good a guy like that really was, you know? Yeah, and those guys are imperative to a team dynamic. You know course, what I mean? I, yeah. could, you know, I loved playing with 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 Deuce, you know, but again, but he was at the other side and he wasn't as much like me and, and I didn't play next to him. I didn't get the real experience that I got with Steve. And so, you know, I hold him in the highest regard and now both Hall, Hall of Famers and, and well-deserved. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Favorite book? Ooh, The Four Agreements is my Ooh, favorite. Ooh, I've heard of this. I haven't read this yet, but I, this is going to be on the list. Yeah. Uh, if you live to the four agreements, you'll be, you'll be happy. I promise you. I love that. I will add that that. on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any quote that you live by? What I said earlier, dream big, think small, I think is my favorite, my favorite quote. I like that. Worst job you had on the side while pursuing the the footballing career. (laughs) Uh, taking wallpaper off walls. So I was in charge of steamer. And so we'd go into these houses. We were working for this guy who was a painter and decorator. And we would go into these like 1920s English homes in London and like take off four layers of, of, uh, of, of wallpaper because they just they used to wallpaper over the old wallpaper. So there'd be like scrapers and steamers. And we'd sit there for like eight hours just just steaming, scraping, steaming, mm. scraping, like until like one room was done. And then like that was the day. And I was like, oh my God, dude, we got to go get, we got to go get a real job. Dude. This is, oh, yeah. This is hard. And so I would say that that wasn't mm. fun. And again, I had, I was doing that when I had like, I was making 40 bucks and had a degree. Like I was yeah. like, these are the days where you, again, the work ethic piece of like, I got to do this. Cause I still, I need 20 bucks to get yeah. to my training session next week. You know what I mean? So those, those moments, but again, that's, it's what shapes us. Yeah. Super humbling. I remember uh, having a business economics degree, but still packing yogurt in a factory and feeling like <laughs> I, I'm a little brainless right now, but Hey, you got to do what you got to do hundred percent. Well, it's all part of it. It's all, it's, you learn something because you're still talking about it. So that means it's a good thing. That's a positive. Yeah. That's a positive way to look at, um, you know, our experience that aren't exactly that positive at the moment or in yeah. the moment. Yeah. Great point. Always laugh at things that, you know, kind of happened. So the last, the last one, most encompassing question of the podcast, it doesn't have to be beans and toast, but what was your favorite English food or dish? Well, I mean, a lot of people may not even know, but the, the English national dish is now chicken tikka masala, which is an Indian dish. Um, so I got into Indian food quite a bit over mm-hmm. there. And so I would say chicken tikka masala from the local Indian right down the road from where I lived in Camden Town. Love that. Love that. Great answer. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time. We really, really appreciate it, Jay. Um, nice. You know, if you guys want to hear more, obviously check out Rise and Shine. Follow Jay on the social medias. But it was a pleasure and, you know, I know everyone's going to get so much out of this. So thank you so much again for sitting down with us. Absolute pleasure, boys. Anytime. We'll, uh, we'll keep fi- rising and shining. Absolutely. Thank you, Jay. So cool that we got to uh, speak to Jay. Um, shout out Alex Winiarski. I think it was you that, that showed me this documentary in college. I think it was 2013, so our second year, which is kind of when I decided I was going to take this journey Mm. for sure like 100 i'm going to do this Mm -hmm. um and he definitely was part of the reason um because i looked at his story and said oh wow that's so sick that like you know you just eat beans and toast and like live in an attic and you could just go on trials like that seemed awesome to me 
<laughs> other people might not <laughs> you, see it that yeah, way you but, had to be one of the few who took that from it but i guess it just shows for that me it was like to do but yeah same. no but he he did that but then yeah. look at him he played in the world's cup he's playing against Messi, playing against yeah. rooney playing against drogba i mean that's yeah incredible yeah i mean it's just so nice to have someone on you know I, it's just, his just story is just the living proof that you know may, that might not happen to all of us that may not happen to us we may never get to that kind of pinnacle you know, I find it hard to believe that I'll ever play for the national team. You know, I think I dream very big, but there are certain realities, right? That just shows you and the young people who listen to this, like, you know, if you put in that work, he had a lot to learn when he got to England. You know, like he said, he didn't know how to talk. He didn't know how to talk on the field. Can you imagine being a Premier League defender and not knowing how to talk on the field? But when he was in the championship, you know, starting off, you know, getting games, minutes under, you know, experienced guys, he sat back, he was a sponge. You know, he soaked it all up. He learned he was respectful. You know, he seemed like he had a very good grip on when his ego needed to come out. Didn't yeah. need to come out around, you know, the, the locker rooms. You know, he was respectful, last in line to, to, to get, you know, food and things like this. Just the small things, just the small short showings of respect, asking yeah. his coaches what he needs to work on, being to himself like, okay, I need to work on my left foot pings. I need to work on this. You know, if you look at the Rise and Shine documentary, it brings you to this little corridor where he's like hitting off the walls and shit. And it's just like, you just think how much work he put in on the side to be ready to play against a championship side Watford. You know how much you're chasing the ball? You know how much, how right. fit you got to be? You never know when an opportunity is going to come, but you have to be ready. What's that quote that you like? It's like about luck. Yeah. Luck is when uh, proper preparation meets an opportunity. And that's that is living embodiment yeah, of that. exactly, exactly. That's just, I mean that's what luck is. It's not getting the opportunity, but you need to be ready for the opportunity when it comes, mm -hmm. because you can get the opportunity. But if he's not fit, if he's not ready, if he's not sharp, he hasn't worked on his weaknesses. They're gonna just laugh at him, and they're gonna get smoked ten nil, and he's gonna yeah. be the laugh sock of the of the first team in Watford at the time, we're a championship team, and he's coming yeah. from a ninth or eighth league team at the time. Yeah, I mean, incredible, making, so much. Making 40 euros. I know how, yeah. that, I mean, 40 pounds. I know how that feels, you know that man. Feels. I know that. I was getting a little less. Yeah. That's the crazy thing. But it just shows you, just to bring back to that last point, we talked about the TED Talk, and preparing for the worst versus preparing for the best. He was preparing for an opportunity like this. You know, it's, it's, it's understandable why people have a plan B, especially when they do something like this, because mm -hmm. nothing is, you know, nothing's – necessarily expected from you nothing is given nothing is you know 100 so i can understand why you put your your work into something else you know you're balancing doing a full-time job or something like this because you're kind of preparing to fail in a way you know it's yeah. tough for me to say that because in instances i do the same thing you know i i prepare in other ways but if something's taking that much time away from you getting better at your craft Mm -hmm. it's something that i mean he kind of realized he's preparing for the best he's not preparing to get fired and yeah. have to move back with his mom that was just if that came that was a thought okay i'll take that when it comes but right another for that final yeah, another one last point i wanted to make from the conversation is when he got the chance he was now with watford on trial and the coach threw him into the starting lineup without telling into him. the lines then again and and his mind he starts racing like i'm gonna play terrible why did the coach do this he goes into that self-destruct mode and mm -hmm. everyone out there listening can, oh, it's so can, can relate to this because it happens in any situation, but do understand that that's just you 
making an excuse before the event even happens. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like this is not the reality of the situation. It's just your mind trying to prepare itself. So if failure does happen, which if you think that way, it will, that you feel less sorry about the situation, but really it's just going to make you feel even worse because now after you're going to regret that he didn't go into the situation like he did, where he worked for two years to get the opportunity mm-hmm. and everything he's done up to that point led him there. Mm-hmm. And now he's there to show what he can do once again, because he's already shown it. Yeah. And, and I thought that even at that, that level, it happens. And he yeah. was able to talk himself out of it before the game got started. And, and the documentary even talks about he didn't play well the first half, actually. Yeah. The second half, he came out and he played really well. And then they wind up bringing him in. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing story. What a, what a guy. I mean, what sitting down with us, just amazing, taking the time. You know, follow him. Make sure you, you watch the Rise and Shine documentary because there's so much more that goes into the story, some things that we weren't able to even touch on. But that main theme that he just projected a few times tonight and then a few times during the documentary where I belong here, you know, I love that. I belong here. I'm ready for this. You know, no matter the opportunity, the, the self-destruct thoughts come, but he doesn't press the button. So I know shout out to him, an amazing time. So happy we got to have him on and, you know, hopefully more. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, make sure you like and subscribe to YouTube. Yeah, come we'll, on. Uh, if you don't like and subscribe after this video, yeah, just, you're on. just not, you're not joining the club. Just Jay Demerit. Jay Demerit here. Come Join on. the club, you know, footwork.clubs live. More uh, articles, more things coming out on that. Like, subscribe, like Sean said. Check out the uh, tactic videos that we've been throwing up on Instagram and TikTok. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to see. All that good stuff, you know, the, the smallest things from, from liking our posts to sharing our posts to writing a review on Apple Podcasts to liking and subscribing, leaving a comment on YouTube. The littlest things help, guys. And we want to build this you know, obviously not just for us, but for the entire community of dream chasers, those who want to make their own path alike. So thank you. Let's keep it going though. Yes. So until next time, keep moving forward, keep learning and make your own path. Jay Demerit. Jay Demerit. Footwork is sponsored by ourselves and great companies such as Kong Fitness. We love to partner with new brands to make their own paths, so get in touch if you must. Footwork.club, the official footwork website is now live, so make sure you go join the club and check out all the new content and all the new features. Find us on YouTube at Footwork Podcast. You better like and subscribe while you're there. If not, I don't know what to tell you. Find us on Instagram at Footwork underscore podcast. Great time there. Twitter at Footwork Podcast. TikTok at Footwork Podcast, where we like to post dance videos. Those are great, but more importantly, amazing content for any dream chasers out there. Plug, plug, pass. Tell your friends, your enemies, your mother, your brother, your sister, your pastor, it doesn't matter who. Tell the mailman, your dog, anybody that can listen. Like, subscribe, review, because all of that helps while you're there. We'll take whatever we can get to join the club. Join the club. He messed me up. I mean, he can just, he can just mash it together, so it's fine.